So, uh, fittingly, our new message series for the new year. Thank you. Starts today in Iowa. It's about an unheralded, almost unknown, who does something amazing that few would have foreseen, that some even believed him crazy, a pie-in-the-sky kind of dreamer with aspirations that seemed unrealistic, and yet he was vindicated. And that man was Ray Kinsella. I think I was going to say Barack Obama. <laughs> I think I was going to say Mike Huckabee. My job here is not to endorse any candidate. It is legal for me to do so, and I wouldn't anyway in good conscience. It's important to remember that although we are liberal religion, that does not necessarily equate exactly to liberal politics. Some of you stand to my left. Some of you stand to my right. And as a spiritual community, our best job is to speak as a voice of conscience and meaning with power and with principle to all political parties, not stand for one. We are not the religious wing of any political gathering. Although in the year to come, I will be talking about politics, not about politicians so much, because let's face it, we've now started this long marathon. It's going to be with us a lot. It's going to be with us too much, frankly. By next November, we are all going to be real, real tired of it if you're not tired of it already. So I'll continue with this theme. But really, all the stuff that happened week, this past week in Iowa got me thinking of Ray Kinsella. How many of you know that name, Ray Kinsella? Okay. I think you probably know who I'm talking about. Now that, of course, is Field of Dreams. And that is Ray Kinsella the inexperienced farmer who had the fantastical fantasy, but no doubt quite heartwarming vision of build it, build it, and he will come. Now, I want to give you two pieces of trivia just before we move on. They're just two pieces of trivia I want to share with you, not really related to the message so much, but you can walk away and say, okay, I know some extra things about this movie right now. One is that if you've ever seen the end of the movie when he's vindicated completely, when the vision is realized and those cars come streaming in and they're going to be able to keep the farm, one of those cars my wife Teresa was driving in. <laughs> you really accomplished a lot with that one, babe. Thanks. So you can say that. I knew someone in that movie. The second piece of trivia is this. Build it, and he, or as it's often said, they will come. To sort of channel comic book guy from The Simpsons, if you've ever watched The Simpsons. Worst church advice ever. <laughs> Worst church advice ever. I wrote it myself in past newsletters and previous churches. You see it all the time. Just build the great big sanctuary and they will come pouring in. They won't be able to resist how wonderful what you build is. They will just flock there. The flock will flock there. Your meeting space doesn't matter. Our meeting space doesn't matter. I love being here. It's great. But mission matters. Not meeting space, but mission. Build it and they will come the worst lie churches of all various stripes ever believed. So moving past those two pieces of trivia now, you can use them however you wish. So with all that focus on Iowa this past week, I thought of Ray Kinsella, who was that inexperienced farmer who had this revelation in the cornfield. Now what emerged in our actual lives from Iowa this past week has often been talked about in the last few days 
as containing that same sort of revelation or surprise within both major political parties about unprecedented opportunities in completely unusual times. This year you will be hearing that over and over and over again, as you do every four years. This time is the most unique time. This time matters the most. This time is unprecedented. This time you have an opportunity to do something unlike any other time in American history. Now, I think this is an unusual unprecedented kind of political year, to an extent. To an extent. Because you know what? Every age and every era wants to say that somehow what is happening in our time, or in their time, or in time to come, is absolutely the most unique ever. It's one of the ways that we get sold on things, by believing that what we're seeing right now has never, ever, 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 ever happened before. But we know that's not entirely the case. Nothing is entirely without precedent. Everything follows and grows from someplace else. And so I thought of these words from about 200 years ago, not quite 200 years ago, this past week. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We're all going direct to heaven. We're all going direct the other way. That, of course, the opening lines of Dickens' famous A Tale of Two Cities. What we hear in those words is both a ringing, wonderful, proclamatory yes, and at the same time that nagging voice of no, of doubt, wondering what might be achieved so grandly, and at the same time, that doubt that all our efforts might fail and nothing, nothing is arrayed to our benefit, that the future isn't there for us and the present isn't so great either. So the question, this is kind of a Rorschach test almost, whenever you read those words of Dickens, and they're used in so many different contexts, which is the most accurate picture of reality? The yes or the no? Which is the one that you believe? Is it the best of times or the worst of times? Now, some believe historically that it is the no that matters the most. The no, the doubt, the not to trust. And that is the way that actually is the only method by which you can grow. The most single famous sermon, the most famous piece of spiritual oratory of the entire 18th century was called this. It was by Jonathan Edwards, the great Calvinist preacher, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, it was said well before the Beatles, well before the Beatles ever came around with their legions of shrieking teenage girls and gaga teenage boys. It was said that when John Edwards would preach sinners in the hands of an angry God, that people would swoon and faint because his depictions of the hellish afterlife were so popular that he would bring people to their knees with his profound no, no. What he said, a big no exists over human history and over humanity. That the only way you can get to where God wants you to go is to realize that no. No, you're not good. No, no, you can't achieve anything good on your own. No, yes, you are dangling. This is, a, this is the language he used. Dangling over a pit held there by a single string of your depravity and your sin. You got no shot. Well, you got one shot, actually but it's not within you. 
Now, fortunately, that wasn't the only word of the 1800s, because in to that time and into that place, universalism was born. The words of John Murray at the end of the 18th century, the great first American universalist preacher who said, offer the people hope, not hell, preach the kindness and everlasting love of God belongs to all of us. He was the anti-sinners in the hands of the angry God. Closer to our age, Thomas Merton, the great mystic who combined his own Cistercian Catholic tradition with Zen Buddhism, he said, punishment will not cure us of the feeling of our unworthiness. I'll repeat that. Punishment will not cure us of the feeling of our unworthiness. No unto itself is not sufficient. Now some on the other side believe that yes is the only answer we need. Yes, a ringing affirmation. I like to call this the Stuart Smalley theology. <laughs> Remember Stuart Smalley? Saturday Night Live, the Al Franken character. Now, as someone who has drawn a tremendous amount of strength and hope and courage from the 12-step movement, I know that this is a sort of kidding nudge in the ribs to all the 12-step stuff. Remember his daily affirmation. He was so very, 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 very wounded. And so at the end of each of his daily affirmations, he would look into the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and God darn it, people like me. <laughs> For the Stuart Smalley theology, it was only and ever yes. It was about pampering ourselves, coddling ourselves entirely. This is the great joke about Stuart Smalley. He always needs the same affirmation time after time after time after time. And I say this as a person who has benefited tremendously in my life from recovery. But the joke is sort of on him, Stuart Smalley, or Al Franken is saying, because he never really grows. Because it's just all gentle and all kind and all loving. And hmm, let me take your hand and let me know it's okay. And, you know, it's just the yes, but it's not enough for him to grow. The truth is between, as we all know, between yes and no that the truth lies somewhere in between in reality, that neither of us, none of us are completely saint or completely sinner, that we struggle to realize who we are, and yet at the core of us, at the core of us, especially in a liberal religious community like this one, we are still convinced that there is something there, something that aches and yearns for abundant life, for authentic being, for being whole people, for being full people, for realizing that we can grow through this life, and even if we know a lot of struggles, and many of us do, still there is the opportunity to be full as individuals. It's one of our core beliefs at Wellsprings here. It was put in exactly for this reason, to address that need that all of us have, that I believe all of you have, whether you've named it or not for yourself. One of our core beliefs, we believe that just as the caterpillar contains the seeds of the butterfly yet to be, that we, each of us, each of you, have the potential for new life. See our little friend, the butterfly, who will be attending with us throughout this entire month's message series. This is the time of the year when many of us give thought to new life or the potential for new life. Now, again, of course, this can happen any time of the year. It doesn't have to be. It's just kind of a silly thing, the way we talk about New Year's resolutions. But if you think about it, it's the way we structure time's birthday. This is when we're sort of all on the same page. We have the opportunity to say, okay, Time is passing, and as a very, very young Ralph Waldo Emerson said before he left his congregation to leave ministry entirely, he said, are you growing or are you just living? That's the question Emerson asked. I want to ask that of all of us today. Are you growing or are you just living through the years? Now, so many resolutions, 
actually, if I would put a pile of my failed resolutions on my back, I wouldn't be able to stand up straight right now this time of year. A lot of resolutions don't work because they're sort of that pie-in-the-sky kind of thinking or up in the air or they're made on that momentary, fragmentary kind of idea. I have to tell you that even though it was almost four years today that Therese and I met for the first time and I took myself out of the dating game, yesterday alone I got six different emails from eHarmony. <laughs> we are fair game, ripe for the plucking this time of year. Find your mates, find the person you're supposed to be with, find a spouse, lose 20 pounds, lose 50 pounds, lose 100 pounds, get smarter, get lighter, get freer, get happier, get, 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 get. But when our resolutions are too ungrounded, we forget the most important nature of real goals, which is that they should be humble. And by humble, I don't mean meek. Humble, the Latin word for it comes from humus, dirt, grounded, earth. Real resolutions that make a difference are grounded. They're not up in the air. They're not pie in the sky. They actually relate to who and what we are as authentic human beings. So I want to ask you a question this morning, which is, if you are thinking a little bit, maybe just a little bit, maybe you're one of those people who says, I don't make New Year's resolutions anymore. Well, chances are you're still thinking a little bit this morning about time. Maybe if it's only because you continue to write 2007 on your checks. Time's at the forefront of our minds right now. And I'll invite you into an opportunity to really reflect on that question from Emerson. Are you growing or are you just living through the years? Are you accumulating time but not necessarily accumulating wisdom? Because my hope for you and my hope for all of us here at Wellsprings is that we can give birth to, even if it's not going to be tomorrow. Maybe it will be for some of us, but it probably will emerge. It probably will take a little bit longer. My hope for all of you is that you can find your butterfly, and no doubt this time next year I'm going to ask you sort of the same question and say, okay, this year's butterfly was good, what's the next thing to come? It's not a matter, especially as religiously liberal people, of being born again just once and saying you're saved, and that is all, and that is it. See, I want all of us here, all of us at Wellsprings, not to be like maybe when you were wrapping your Christmas gifts, your holiday gifts this year, and maybe you threw that paper onto the rolling fire, and because there were so many synthetic stuff in that paper, it went whoosh. It just burned up so quickly and went away. I want you, I want all of us to be like the log that sits at the center of the fire that is banked strongly and firmly and keeps that light and that heat generating strongly and continuing to radiate. So the question of how to have resolutions that count, resolutions that actually make a difference in your life, I think it really comes down to two things. It comes down to one, your vision, and two, your steps. One, your vision, and two, your steps. What do you see on the horizon? What do you see on the horizon of your life when looking out as far as you possibly can, almost all the way to the end of your life as you would see it, and maybe beyond if that is part of your hope? What do you see on the horizon? And then... Gauging that sense, sort of like Ray Kinsella, that vision, that fantastical vision. The second question, how will you walk toward that vision day by day? What do you see on the horizon and where are your steps taking you so that you are making progress in the direction of the horizon of your life? It's about something to step toward and something to step on. 
I believe each of us needs something grand to step toward. It doesn't have to be earth-shaking, but it has to be deeply, deeply meaningful for each of us. Melville, who struggled for years with depression his entire life, he said that we become sad in the first place because we have nothing stirring to do. That's the question about what is on the horizon of your life. What is stirring for you? What stirs you? What on those days that you don't want to get out of bed can you rely upon? Or those nights when you can't fall asleep that you can rest in the promises of? That's the question of what's on the horizon of your life. And then the second thing, and frankly most important, because many of us have great dreams, but the tragedy of so many of our lives is that we have vision without volition, vision without voice, without tangible movement and progress. And that's why one of our core values here at Wellsprings is this, spiritual practice. Because if we don't show up day after day after day, regularly, very, sometimes very, very small ways, the rest of the world may not see them, and frankly, it may be really important that the rest of the world may not see them, because right now we might be in our chrysalis, you know, that protected place where we need to be sort of held, held while we're becoming what we need to. But it is about daily practice. There's a question I ask myself to myself at the end of every day, and I don't always answer it as I would wish I would. But at least I ask the question, what steps have I made today in pursuit of the person I want to become? In pursuit of that vision of higher self, of deeper self, of more loving compassion, of more loving kindness. That is the end of my day prayer. It's a kind of little checklist. It's part of also my recovery. Part of what keeps me moving on and making progress. The opportunity to take inventory. This is a time of the year in which a lot of us are taking inventory, asking yourselves, what really do you contain? And from our great teacher, Thoreau, he put it this way, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. Your castles in the air is exactly where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. The castles in the air on the horizon, that is exactly where they should be. If they're so easily achievable, they wouldn't be worth all that much. At the same time, how will we and how will you walk toward them in this new year? That's the question at the end of the day, and that's really the question at the end of a life. Where do you set your eyes and where do you set your feet? Another way to phrase this is where does your life yearn to flow? Kind of like that old Quaker tune, that old Quaker hymn, if you know it. My life flows on an endless song. Where is the endless song within your life that you wish to flow toward? See, one of those things is a yes. One of those things is a yes. On the horizon, this is what I can do daily to achieve my vision. This is what I'm willing to give. This is the practice. These are the gifts that I have that I'm willing to expend every day. Not hold on to and not be fearful of, but say this is what I'm willing to do day after day after day so that when I look back a year from now or ten years from now, I can say... Really, there has been growth in this life. And at the same time, part of that inventory taking as well is the chance to honestly say no. The chance to honestly say, you know what, this is not working. Or I am not using my life as I should. It is not just all yes. Think of it as an artery. An artery that within you, the most powerful one that takes the blood right to the heart so it can be recycled into the system. What happens if you have plaque in that artery? It constricts. It tightens. It cannot carry the blood, the life flow, where it needs to go. And so 
All of us, I think, must ask that question. Where is the plaque? Where is the accumulated stuff? Where is the stuff that we know is not healthy for us, is not healthy to us? And we have to get about the work, all of us, if we're going to grow, of saying, you know what? Enough of that. No longer let me make wide the way in my life. Not tight, not constricted, but open and free and loving. You know, that's the original meaning of what salvation is. Salvation sometimes is a very otherworldly kind of thing. It's very much one of those words that I think we've ceded entirely to the Christian right. But it's our word too. We can take it back. You know what salvation actually means? Making wide the way. So yes, I think, even Unitarian Universalists, liberal religious folks, all of us need a form of salvation. Because I think all of us are called to move from that constricted life to a life in which the way is wide and welcoming. And so you're going to see in your questions for reflection in your order of service, I'm going to ask you to do this. Just spend five minutes today asking yourself about that question, what do you need to say yes to? And what do you need to say no to? Perhaps this will form the basis of a spiritual practice for you. And I know five minutes on one day is not going to get it done. But I encourage you to start. And I know actually many of you are already doing this kind of work of saying, what must I say yes to? And following it and letting go the stuff that is not giving you full life. When I think of the process of taking inventory, when I think of that process of honestly accounting where our lives are at, I think of a woman I knew in one of my first churches that I started attending. I'm not going to go too much into her own story because, frankly, it's pretty horrific. I mean, she suffered all of the kind of abuse, sexual, emotional, familial growing up. I mean, just really, really awful stuff. And she was really, I mean, incredibly bright. And she, she was a great survivor. She knew how to get, you know, sort of through. <laughs> she knew how to keep living when there were many things within her that said no. That said no, the despair is too great, or the pain is too great, or life just doesn't make sense. But there came a time in her life when she found out that was not going to be enough. That was not going to be enough to give her the full life that she wanted, and it was the point at which she became a mom. It was the point at which she said, just surviving any longer is not good enough. And so I know perhaps like many of you, she sought out a spiritual community that became Unitarian Universalism when she said, what am I actually going to give my kids? Because I don't want to teach them certainly what was done to me. I know I'm not going to do that. But I can't just take away a negative. I have to give them something positive. I want to give them love. I want to give them the kinds of things that weren't given to me. I want to give them the kind of experience and faith in themselves that I never had. I don't want them to have to go through. I remember her telling me once what I had to go through. And so very hesitatingly, very, very scared, she told me, the first time she came to a spiritual community, which was Unitarian Universalism, she could barely make it to the door. She was shaking so much. Because what she thought was that those people would see her entire inventory. They would see what a mess she was. They would see how unworthy she was. They would see how unlovable she was. They would see how, without grace, without God, she was. But she kept showing up and showing up and showing up. And the point at which I met her in spiritual community, she was one of the rocks in that church. People relied upon her because she knew what it was like to be in that place of being real, real, way far down. 
And what she found in spiritual community was that opportunity to take inventory, not just as an immoral inventory, but a full understanding of who she was and what her life contained. And this, more than anything else, what church helped her to do, what spiritual community helped her to do. She learned that she could trust her life. She learned that there was something more than mere survival, that there was gladness, there was grace, there was love, there was an understanding of God that she never had before by being in a place in which she was given permission to have her full self, to experience for the first time in life a yes, still existing alongside all of those no's that she had grown up with. And she did it week after week after week after week. It's that old Woody Allen thing. He's kind of a mess himself. I don't think he's capable of too much growth, unfortunately. But he was absolutely right with this. 90% of life is showing up. And it is showing up within ourselves. Not lying to ourselves. Having an honest accounting of who we are. So I want to go back to Field of Dreams, back to that supernatural tale. If you remember the very beginning, kind of the prologue in which Kevin Costner's character speaks, you recognize that actually you can see where the plot's going. They give you a little tell. One of the first things he talks about is how estranged he is from his father. It's not about giving Joe Jackson the chance to play again. The disgraced Black Sox, 1919, Dad? 1919, 1918? 1919, disgraced former baseball player. Build it and he will come was about him overcoming his estrangement from his father. It's part of that generation, that Vietnam-era generation, in which he thought he had to leave everything behind. But we know we still carry with us those things that we want to leave behind. And so he had the opportunity to do so. And Joseph Campbell is actually right. How many of you sort of read or like Joseph Campbell? You know, he talks about myth, talks about the power of myth. And the problem with spirituality very often is that it ends at the level of myth, or what we would call religion, not spirituality. It's just the myth. It's just the magic. It's just believed that Jesus literally rose from the grave after three days, or literally believed that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, was delivered to Moses, and then everything will be okay. But those are myths. I think an opposite negative reaction is just to let it go and say it don't mean anything at all. Joseph Campbell, one of the prophets of myth of our age, said... Meaning flies in to our lives on the wings of myth. And there's the deeper story there. And it's the story of Ray Kinsella. And I would dare say it's the story in one way or another of all of us and of all of you. Of learning to overcome exile. Of learning to overcome alienation. Of learning that loneliness is not the promise of life. That redemption and peace and love, and even that sense of salvation of having the way in our lives made wide, that this is a promise offered to all of us. And that's the big lie about those who would deny the power of spirituality. These are not supernatural things at all. You don't have to suspend any of your doubts to believe in these things, because they are all within you already. The capacity for new life is within you already. What it takes is this, real work, real willingness, a real desire to change, a real desire to grow. I'm going to end with this word here today. It's a Hebrew word, and it'll lead us into what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. It describes in the Bible, very often, you know, they sort of project onto the divine figure, onto God, all those characteristics that they really have within themselves. 
Chesed means steadfast love. Not love like Valentine's Day love. Not love of hearts and flowers. But the kind of love that allows you to see your life and each other's lives for really what we and they and all of us contain. It's the kind of love that allows you to look with unblinking eyes at the truth of who you are and say, yes, I can still love this, even if it is so far from perfect. Chesed. Steadfast love. This is what I wish you this new year so that you can, within yourself, find the butterfly or the bird or whatever token animal it is that you love, the one that needs to unfurl its wings and fly. Amen. And may you live in blessing. The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. Now, if you've been around here for a while, you probably know by this point, and be new to you if you are new today, that I like to use a lot of video clips in my teaching and in my preaching. And normally, I can provide some context. That today is impossible. Because the clip I'm going to show you is from the TV show Lost. How many of you are Lost fans? Okay. So you know that when I say this is a TV show about a group of castaways, survivors from an airplane wreck, and that's all I can tell all of you today, you know that that gets to like not even 1% of what's going on in that show. I'd have to set up, and indeed, maybe three, four years from now, when the show's finally concluded, I will do a 10 or 12 week message series on the meaning of loss. Now is not the time, because I'd probably prove to be entirely wrong about the mystery and the meaning and the magic of what's going on. So I'll just tell you this, that the scene you're going to see is based on two characters. Charlie, a struggling, almost former musician, who very early on in the series, the plane's gone down, and he is suffering from heroin withdrawal. He just has one bag left. And then there's John Locke, who's sort of this mysterious shaman, healer, devotee, guru. You can't quite get a handle on what he's doing. I will tell you what happens. This is the story. It's okay. It's okay. What happens is this. It's actually a dramatization of an old story that Nikos Kazantzakis tells. Kazantzakis, who was the author of Last Temptation of Christ and Zorba the Greek. He tells the story about walking through the forest one day and what he spies in the crook of a tree where the branch is coming off of the trunk is a beautiful, beautiful chrysalis, a cocoon. And he sees this cocoon and he sees that just coming through, just coming through the walls of the cocoon, this new life is struggling to be. And he can see the little creature, this butterfly almost, want to spread its arms and flap its wings and fly away. And Kazanzakis, thinking that he will help this new life come to be, he says, maybe it's a little cold. And he puts his hands around that chrysalis. And he blows on it. And it bursts open. And he's thinking, what a wonderful thing I've done. What an amazing thing I've done. I've brought this new life into this world problem, however, and you can see this almost immediately, is that the cocoon has opened prematurely. 
The chrysalis is not ready to hatch. And so this butterfly is not ready to be born. And it comes out of its cocoon and it falls on the ground. And within five minutes it is dead. That's part of what we're going to see today in Lost. It's part of what the scene is talking about that Charlie, who's struggling from his heroin withdrawal, says, please, Locke, just give me my stash back. (laughs) Just give it to me back. And what Locke tells him is about, actually, it's a moth cocoon that he shows him. And he says, you see the top? Do you see the top, that small hole? That's where eventually the moth will emerge and be whole. But you can't rush that. And he says, struggle is nature's way of strengthening the moth or the butterfly yet to be. The struggle is nature's way of strengthening what needs to be. This morning, in this message series I'm continuing with about new life in the new year, caterpillar to butterfly, talking about soul struggle, talking about the necessity of this kind of pain in our lives. And I want to be really, really clear at the outset. This kind of pain is very different from others. You have a person in your life or people in your life who are causing you pain or trying to cause you violence or you are suffering from chronic pain, disease, or illness, there's nothing redemptive in that. There's nothing redemptive in that kind of suffering that perhaps some traditions say, just suffer and you will become godlike, or just suffer and you will become Christ-like. That kind of theology, I think, is expressed, unfortunately, in just about any Mel Gibson movie. And I'm not talking about the passion. I mean, you go back to Lethal Weapon, all the way to the beginning of his career as a big action movie star, And the message in almost every Mel Gibson movie there is is that violence, suffering, and pain is always redemptive. That is such a damaging lesson and has locked so many souls, so many lives in unhealthy relationships, in unhealthy patterns. That's not what I'm talking about here today. Talking, though, about soul struggle, about the process by which in the same way the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, or you move from one phase of life to a new phase of life, that's soul struggle. And it should be listened and honored to if you are really going to make your way between two states of being. In the soul struggle, when you can find your way out of the chrysalis and into new life, that is when new life is arising from within you. Now this way into new life is not easy. Like John Locke says, The struggle is nature's way of strengthening us. The thing is, we all know this already. We know it in our bones. We know it from our birth. That there is no true, new, wonderful creation without any struggle, without any strife, without even sometimes some pain. It's why they call birth labor. It's why there is work associated with it. Tears and cries and shouts and grunting and pushing and the kind of thing I'll never know as man. But still, there is work and labor and pain and struggle involved in the creation of this new and beautiful thing. I had a friend from college whose dad was a crusty, real old crusty sort of guy. And he used to say, he used to tell him, well, okay, I'll write another of your semester's tuition checks. It's a little game they used to play. And before he sent him back to school, he would say, Jeff, Jeff, remember, you're going to leave this house one day the same way you came into it, naked and poor. Now, Jeff is doing just fine these days. He's not naked and he's not poor, not at all. But you know what? That's probably why we want to hide from that feeling that really is in our bones and from our birth. That all new life comes with growing pains. 
But we like to protect ourselves from this, especially as adults. And especially in our world where we have so many modern entitlements. And look at what just happened. The technology didn't work. And nine out of ten times it does. We expect things to work. We expect things to go our way. So much of our lives, especially in a place like Chester County, is organized so that we can have it quicker, faster, better, and stronger. Advances in technology, however, are not necessarily advances in the realm of the spirit. The spiritual realm is timeless and doesn't advance so easily. And so our struggles, in many ways, when we're given birth to new life within ourselves, it's not that different, even if we use different words from what happened a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or on beyond that. This Tuesday is the birthday of Martin Luther King, Jr. And he knew in his prophetic role as our greatest American prophet, he knew the struggles and the joys of calling forth new life. And one of my favorite quotes of his is this. He said, human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. Human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. And what he said is this, and he was calling America to reckon with its conscience. He said, you know what? There's a lot in this country, back then and still even now, that requires us to be maladjusted to it. Don't just accept human suffering especially the kind that we cause. Just don't accept oppression. Just don't accept injustice. This kind of call is supposed to make us uncomfortable because out of that call comes new life. Out of that call for reconciliation and being one people, paying attention to the pain that was in the land, we were able to fulfill parts of the dream, part of the American dream that Dr. King lived out more than anyone having that new vision, that greater vision, means having to be able to deal with some of that discomfort. Frederick Douglass, who was his predecessor by over 50 years and calling for the struggle of justice and moving our nation forward, said, there can be no progress without struggle. We want crops without plowing up the ground. We want rain without the thunder and lightning. We want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. As our Buddhist friends tell us, this is sometimes why we suffer a great deal. Because we hold on to what we have and we think it is all we will get and we do not see that in fact there is new life waiting within us and around the corner for us and we think that the growth we can get sometimes will be without tumult, the real soulful spiritual growth. Now the Buddhist tradition grew out of the Hindu tradition and I love the image of the goddess Kali. Some of you might know about her. Now do I actually believe there is a goddess named Kali? No, I don't. But I also know that when we talk about God, we are using symbols and images that help us describe the deepest parts of our reality. And so I love the goddess Kali. Because at the same time, she is the goddess of destruction and the goddess of new creation. Simultaneously, one and the other. As things break down, so they are coming to be in something new as well. You don't get one without the other. But there is a way beyond this struggle that deeper call of peace, that deeper call of new life. When we feel this friction, and maybe some of you are at this point in your life where you're feeling it right now, that's where you start to feel maladjusted. That's where maybe you're taking a look at your job or your life circumstance or the state of your spiritual growth, and you're saying, you know what? What was old doesn't work anymore. And I feel the call of something new, but I don't know what that is yet. You're betwixt and between. 
That's where that maladjusted thing comes from. It's like that moment when you leave the darkened movie theater and your, light, your eyes can't see and you, you, know, you want to stay blinded. Your, light, your eyes take time to adjust. That is part of listening to new life. But maladjustment is not all of it. It's not the way to new growth. Maladjustment is just, we're going to continue it, sorrow, attachment, addiction, unhealthy relationships, all kinds of things, because we seek comfort in things that ultimately can't provide them. This is where the creativity comes in. Creative maladjustment. Creativity is the capacity to feel that friction and listen to it and say simply, because we're feeling some pain, we're not going to shut it down. We're going to listen to that struggle within us that doesn't know what the new thing is yet, even as we've left behind what we know already. Creativity allows us to feel the possibility, listen to it, and to make it productive for us. It's that space between the already was and the not yet. Maybe this was like it for you on your first day of college or your first day of school or when you first got married or when you got divorced or when you left a job and started a new one. All these kinds of positions in life that psychologists like to call liminal. It's just a fancy word for between. Listen to the between spaces, is what the poet Rilke called living the questions. He said, you may not know the new answers that you need yet, but live the questions. In time, you will grow into the answers. It's just like this month, January. It's named for the Roman god Janus, who is, of course, two-faced, happy and sad, both and, not either or. And Janus was also the god of doorways, of passageways between old and new, which is why we call it January, as the calendar flips over again and we find our way into a new year. Maybe it was for you the first day of school. Maybe for some of us, as we've seen it in people we love, the last day of their lives. These are, as human beings for us, the sacred passageways that we take from one phase of life to another. The thing is, if we're like the cocoon that Kazanzakis broke open early, we're not quite ready for that new life. We have to learn how to take time and be patient. There are so many spiritual fads. There are so many incomplete answers that we are offered. Last week I talked about in this new year getting six different eHarmony emails the day before I preached. Well, it was only four yesterday. There are so many invitations to new life. Now, I have no problem with dating services online. It's how I met my wife. But there are so many sources of snake oil out there. And what is worse is that after a time, if these promises fail we will find that we will have become cynical, that we don't believe the capacity for new life is real and we will just stay trapped only in what we know. But Emerson, who really created the term self-reliance, also had another beautiful part to what he talked about. And he said that faith makes us, we don't make it. We are formed in the image of the new life that wants to come to be within us. Now, there are some rules we can use as we go through a process of new life. And the first is this. To be cautious with comfort. Don't seek for comfort prematurely. The guy who worked with us, going back almost two years, almost to the date exactly now, a guy named Tom Bandy who helped us put together our values and our beliefs, he gave us one final warning, which is also a final blessing. He looked at our demographics, he looked at who Wellsprings could become, and he said this, almost his parting shot, don't build a congregation in which people only feel comfortable. 
If we only feel comfortable, we are not growing. Which is to say, if I'm making you a little uncomfortable with all this talk about new life, good. (laughs) The way it should be. The ancient Hebrew prophets called it this way. They said, be wary of the prophets who call out, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And it's not because they did not believe in peace. It's not because they did not believe in blessing. It's just that there were so many others out there who were able to say, you know what, just take a half portion of the blessing. Just get a little bit, and this will be the complete peace. Don't listen to this discomfort. Don't listen to the pain. And they were saying, you know what, listen. Keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, keep your being open. These are what I like to call 3 a.m. moments. Now, I hope you don't have too many 3 a.m. moments or dark nights of the soul in your life, but I would guarantee you at some point you're going to have some, even if you know you go to sleep at 9 o'clock and your 3 a.m. moments happen at 8 o'clock at night. The point is that when you have these 3 a.m. moments, don't rush forward and hope that it's midday already. Pay attention to the appointed hour and what you will find there. Because in the 3 a.m. moments, you will find yourself asking questions about your life that you won't at midday, or you won't in the midst of how busy things are. At 3 a.m., you will find these questions coming to rise, and you can start to listen to them. Like you've gotten a rash, maybe from an illness or an allergy, and you, know, you can scratch that rash, and it'll take away the sting. And you can keep scratching, and keep scratching, and keep scratching, and keep scratching. Eventually, the relief is going to go away. Eventually, you'll just cause more irritation. Or you can take the time to go to a doctor, get the diagnosis, see what's actually going on in your system that's giving rise to the rash in the first place. Probably my favorite story about this is Alfred Nobel. You all know the Nobel Prize? Probably many of you know also that he invented dynamite. That's right, Jake, he did. Now, do you know how he had his 3 a.m. moment? He woke up one day, and just imagine yourself in this situation. He woke up one day, and he was, you know, thrumming through his daily paper, and he saw his own obituary. He saw his obituary for his life prematurely, and clearly he was not dead yet. And he saw these words, the merchant of death is dead. You know, none of you are responsible for dynamite, I don't think, and, you know, you felt that pause go through you. He woke up to these words one day. And at that point, that's where the creative maladjustment comes in. See, because he could have rationalized it. He didn't intend to invent dynamite. He could have said, I didn't mean it. It wasn't my intention. No problem. He could have rationalized it away. But he listened to that soul struggle, that soul struggle that he had, Because at heart, he was a pacifist. He didn't mean to invent something that would kill millions of people. But it did. And so he swore from that place forward, waking up one day that his life would end, even though it hasn't already, and asked himself, what will I make of this life that I have left? And it was from that place that Alfred Nobel decided that he would dedicate his vast fortune to the honoring of peace and justice and creativity, and new invention, and new life. And I think the way that Alfred Nobel got through this is he must have done a little bit of self-talk. You know, when you're going into one of these processes of new life, very often the opportunity comes along and you want to say, I don't like the way this feels. I mean, who likes feeling bad about themselves? Who likes feeling negative about where they are? He could have said, it's all right. I didn't mean to. No problem. 
He could have said, this doesn't feel good, I'm going to drown it out. But I believe that Alfred Nobel asked himself a deeper and different question, which I would term as this. I think he said to himself, my soul is troubled right now, and I'm going to follow this into new birth and into new life. These are my growth pains. He listened to them. He didn't shut them down. He was able to name it. He was able to say, I will stay here in this place, even if it is uncomfortable, even if it is not so good feeling. And this is how he transformed his life, and this is the gift he was able to give the world out of his place of creative maladjustment. Just this past week, I witnessed a beautiful, beautiful moment of creative maladjustment. There's a place called Olivia's House that's in York, Pennsylvania. And it describes itself as a grief and healing center for children. It's a center for loss. It, actually, in the DVD I'm about to show you, it was introduced by Sam Waterston, the actor, from a group called Visionaries, which talks about people who are able to do really amazing ministries and gifts and work with people who are struggling in America right now. And as Sam Waterston introduces it, he says, you know what? We all die. We all have struggles. But for children, children who lose a parent, children who lose a beloved sibling, children who suffer a loss, they can't reason their way out of it. They are just left with their sorrow and their pain. And so Olivia's house is an answer to that. And when I was watching this DVD this past week, it really struck me and it reminded me of when I was, well, more than a kid, but really not a man yet, 22, and on Thanksgiving Day 1992, my mother just dropped dead without any warning or any reason whatsoever. And I got half of it right. I was maladjusted after that. Not the creative part. Not the creative part at all, unfortunately for me and unfortunately for those who were close to me. And there was this one night when I was hanging out with a friend and the night went on far too long and frankly there was far too much liquid refreshment involved in it. And I was really trying to get him to understand, you know, what I was struggling with, what I was suffering with six to seven months later. And finally, I think he just got frustrated with my whining and said, this is life. Just deal with it. Eh. We didn't talk for about a good two years after that point. But I don't think I had any creative way to express what I was feeling. And that's why my heart really went out to these stories that you're about to see at Olivia's house. You're going to see three stories featured right now. Two sisters who lost their 18-year-old sister and two sisters who lost their dad and then their mom and then their grandmother who was caring for them all in the space of just several years and one teen who lost his dad. Well, why don't we try and show that?
Thanks, Will. That pounding nails exercise, that is creative maladjustment. <laughs> what the kids are feeling, what the teens are feeling at that point in their lives, is they are maladjusted. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is what happens when we move from one phase of life to another, when we have to say goodbye, when people we love are taken from us. It's part of the difficulty. The creativity comes when we have ways to express that. The creativity comes when we can hold open that opportunity for new life and listen to it, which is also one of the great advantages we have over the cocoon and the chrysalis and the butterfly. And you can see it in places like Olivia's house. The final truth of our human creative maladjustment is that we are not alone. Only you can make the choice to follow the call of new life wherever it will take you. Only you. No one else can force you to do it. As Frank talked about today, especially in this kind of religious community, we would not force you to do it. You have to enter that path because of your decision and your willingness. But what you will find there, what you will find there, if you take the first step, is that many others have walked the path before you. It requires our effort, yes, but it also we will find along the way the grace of others who will carry us. This is why when we talk about faith, too often faith is made into this great big question, do you have faith or don't you? Faith is actually, I think, a verb rather than a noun. Faith is saying we can learn to trust. We can learn to trust the call of new life within each of us and follow it where it wants to take us, knowing that we don't control that process. Anne Lamott is one of my favorite writers. She talks about the role of community 
and of love and of friendships. She says, this is the most profound spiritual truth I know. That even when we're most sure that love does not conquer all, it seems to anyway. It goes down into that rat hole with us in the form and the guise of friends, and there it swells, and there it comforts. It gives us second winds, third winds, a hundredth winds. It gives us inspiration. That's what inspiration means, literally. The deep breath. We are inspirited by those who love us. We are inspirited by those who support us. And from it we find the creativity to not get closed down or closed off or just closed to ourselves. We can realize that this is great spiritual wisdom as well. That we do not need to rationalize and we don't need to hide. We can face honestly who we are, whether it's in the new year or any time of year. And we can remain committed to listening. Listening to our lives. Not cutting off the conversation because we can't control the conversation. But remaining committed to hearing. And we can know that there is another side to the soul struggle. That just as the ancient prophets called forth, there can be peace for us as well. Not partially, not fully. On the other side of that struggle, there is new life. It is there and it is waiting for all of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.